Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Has it been a week already? It's Friday, and you know what that means. Time for our weekly news recap, where we cover the top stories that you need to know about. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. This week's panelists include David Grising, president of the Better Government Association, Chicago Axios reporter Carrie Shepard, and WBEZ investigative reporter Dan Mahalopoulos. We started off by talking about the CTA train accident that happened yesterday near the Chicago-Evanston border. Here's Carrie with what we know so far. NTSB is going to be investigating, I think, starting today, but there was 38 people injured, um, none, I think only three critically, but the yellow line, which is, you know, some of us may know as the Skokie Swift. Um, <laughs> the, I was today years old when I learned that. Yeah, Skokie Swift. <laughs> the yellow line, uh, in coming into Howard, the end of the red line, uh, hit a snowplow, I guess. Um, there is already a lawsuit filed against the CTA in the city by one of those passengers. And we were just talking before about last time, you know, there aren't trail derailments very often of the CTA. Thank goodness, knock Mm -hmm. on wood. Um, The last one, major one I recall was like in 2014, the blue line and running into O'Hare. And that was pretty, that was a big one. But I haven't heard of any major ones since that one. So do we know yet what caused this? We don't. We don't. I think that that is, is, I mean, I'm pretty sure the NTSB has to, National Transportation Safety Board has to determine that. Yeah. Um, mayor, the mayor put out a very, very pr- brief statement, you know, we're thinking of the families. No word from CTA uh, head Dorville Carter that I saw, which I was Nothing a little yet. surprised hmm. about. Often they will go to the scene and do a presser or something, but um, Nothing so far. I didn't, I, not that I've seen. Interesting. Yeah, service on the yellow line is currently still suspended while the uh, NTSB investigates. All right, let's let's move over now to Mayor Johnson's $16 billion budget that uh, passed city council easily, David. Was that expected? Well, yes, in a way. Um, it, given all the the fury in city council in the days leading up to it, there was some question about could he kind of organize votes. But as it, as it turned out, he got an overwhelming 41 to 8 uh, um, vote for his budget, $16.6 billion. So a lot of interesting stuff in there. The one is the big hole in the budget. He doesn't have nearly enough money assigned to mm. migrant-related costs. $150 million is what he's allocated. The run rate right now is about $40 per month, which, if you do the math, that means about $500 million next year. So mm. the big question is, where's that going to come from? He The police spending stays about flat at just about $2 billion, which was a surprise to some people given his background is having at one point talked about defunding police, but he is taking some people, he's changing some people to sworn positions, but they won't have arresting powers. And so he is making his move toward kind of raise it, lowering the temperature when it comes to policing in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And the other interesting thing is he is creating the Department of the Environment, which is something that Rahm Emanuel eliminated, Lori Lightfoot promised to do and never did do. Mm-hmm. Brandon Johnson is creating the Department of the Environment, but it has very little staffing and no enforcement power yet. And so that's kind of like still a lot of work to be done there. So, I mean, overall, were there any major criticisms about the mayor's budget? 
Well, I think this hole in the budget with regard to the spending on migrants, it's like that was the big... he, he's waiting for more state money, and the state is basically saying you're not getting any more money. He's waiting for federal money. He actually went to Washington, D.C., and President Biden came here, and still the feds are saying nothing. So the big question, and some of the older people are raising questions about this, is, okay, where's this extra whatever, $650 million going to, or several hundred million dollars going to come from. Yeah. You had thoughts, Dan? Yeah. I mean, maybe he's just betting on the fact that does Biden really want to come here to get renominated again in August of next year with the scenes that we see on a daily basis, a few blocks from Navy Pier and at other places around the city and even in the suburbs uh, and and that issue being so divisive, being such an effective wedge issue for the Republicans who have sent these migrants from places like Texas and from the border to here, uh, do they want that um, to not be solved by next year? Exactly. And they should want it to be solved more quickly because of the suffering and because of the expense as yeah. well to places like Chicago and Illinois. But does Joe Biden, Democratic president of the United States, want to be renominated at a Democratic national convention where you have this issue on top of the other issues uh, like what we yeah. saw at the DNC in Washington the other day, the, yeah. the Arab-Israeli conflict? What can you add, Carrie? I well, mean, and this more... budget is trying to help 21,000 migrants. Yeah, I mean, Dan's point, right, ahead of the DNC in August, and this is not something Pritzker wants either to not be solved. This is his big moment. Right. Um, and that's, you know, on the other side of it in city council, what you see is this odd, this sort of incredibly, you know, tenuous moment and fight about sanctuary city status. You know, Chicago is a welcoming city. And if that it's, you know, if it gets on the ballot, it's non-binding. But, you know, is does Chicago this like progressive, this blue center in this red sea mm-hmm. ahead of the DNC? Is that really something we want to like lose our sanctuary city status. That's not going to look good for for Johnson, Biden, or Pritzker. Yeah, well, to, to that since point. Since 1981, right? I mean, it's Eight, been decades. Yeah, since Harold Washington. City, yeah, city. yeah. So a lot of debate over that, you know, what it means to be a welcoming city. And the mayor announced some new limits to how welcoming Chicago can be. Right, Carrie? Yeah, that was just... I think he has a presser on it coming up, so we're talk- we're t- we're talking in the future here. Yes. <laughs> but he has put out his his plan. Um, this is the sixty day limit that um, for new arrivals that if you he has there it's tiered that when you've entered a shelter, a city shelter, you have sixty days to find new housing. How this is going to work is you know caseworkers are going to work with you to find the housing, for perhaps get rental assistance. Um, you know, this will remains to be seen how that's going to look and um, how that's going to look to the outside. Are we going to be, you know, shipping people out? At, you know, not much of a welcoming city. 60 days from now would be kind of middle of January time frame, right? Um, you think this and, new and, policy would surprise folks? Uh, 60 well, days? What's happening here is that, that Mayor Johnson is kind of walking back a statement mm-hmm. he made about 60 days, which people responded to saying, you're going to kick people out of these tents in the middle of the winter. And so now he's looking for a sort of political room to say, yeah, 60 days, but we're going to start the clock a lot later than that sounded like. Right. I mean, that's right. And also, this is a bit this is a bit of a, you know, 
don't come here sort of thing. It's a sort of soft way of saying that. We will help you. You got here. We'll give you 60 days. We'll give you two months to David's point. We're all seeing what, you know, is going to happen in the coming weeks as it gets colder and colder Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, what that's going to mean for the migrants. Yeah. The city says it will fine bus companies that don't adhere to the the city's curfew or or rules around loading and unloading. What's that about? Well, there's a lot of... Debate about are the buses safe? Are the bus are the buses are just showing up, and right. and the city has no control over when these buses show up, where they go, where they drop people off, and I think they're just trying to get a get a handle on that whole thing. And let's not forget, people also are arriving by airplane from time to time right. as well, too. Yeah, so. and so we talked about this this hundred and fifty million dollars allocated for the handling of the the migrant crisis in, in the the budget. Um, but to be clear, we we started seeing other government funding sources step up. To help this week, David? Well, yes, the state has stepped up and, and with $160 million worth of spending, which is divided uh, between about $65 million for the cost of tents, uh, $30 million for an intake center, and $65 million for legal support services as people get acclimated and try to begin start finding jobs legally. And the big question here is the coordination between the city and the state. And we had a very odd press conference with Governor Pritzker where uh, he made it clear that they were providing this money. There had been no direct ask for this money Mm -hmm. from the mayor. Uh, There was some irritation behind the scenes that the mayor kind of uh, beat the governor to announcing this money by announcing it a couple days before the the governor actually had his press conference Mm -hmm. about it. There's a lack of coordination between the city and the state on this. The governor said, we're, we're providing this homeless shelter, but it's going to be the city. It's like, don't come blaming us if things get right. ugly during the middle of the winter. Yeah. And so federally, uh, do we think we might see some federal funds? Well, to Dan's point, there's there's a political reason that the feds might, but the feds really have kept their hands off this thing. It's amazing how quiet the feds have been on this right. issue. So and the mayor of New York has been far more critical of President Biden to the point where reportedly he's damaged his relationship with Biden. Now the mayor of New York, uh, Mr. Adams, also has his own problems <laughs> right. with that a federal is investigation. <laughs> right. um, Which and we don't have time to get into. But, I mean, that does raise a question of why Illinois officials are not more critical of Washington. They're the same party. I understand that. But, you know, your first obligation is to your constituency here. And also we should add that the county approved $100 million. Um, You know, Cook County Health is a major, major, you know, public health, one of the largest public health systems in the country. We have an enormous county budget. So $100 million uh, from from the county as well. Still not enough. Still probably not enough. Probably not. Um, Dan, our colleagues at the Sun-Times, they investigated whether some Venezuelan migrants might belong to gangs. What did they find out there? Right. There's a gang in Venezuela called El Tren de Aragua, and it's a it's a violent gang, human trafficking, all sorts of nasty things. So you have people at the border who say, well, you're, you're not only letting people into the country to seek asylum, you're not vetting them. And many of them, according to, to authorities in Texas, uh, could be involved in a gang. And the Cook County Sheriff, Tom Dart, his office says they're vigilant about this. However, Tom Shuba and Frank Main, our, our esteemed colleagues at the Sun-Times, found almost no proof that, that this gang has established any presence around here. They looked, so we're talking about 20,000-something um, migrants from right. Venezuela in the past year or so. Just a few dozen cases, mostly you know, shoplifting and, and those sorts of offenses at places like Macy's, 
downtown where there's a shelter not far from from the department mm-hmm. stores, Nordstrom, some some in Oak Brook as well. Uh, but they looked through all of those cases, and there was only one case out of all of them where one of the defendants might have had some tattoos that could indicate that he's part of this gang. Otherwise, there's no proof that that's anything more uh, than possibly a far-right talking point that, that gangs are being uh, let in here and that the asylum seekers are some kind of Trojan horse for um, for criminal elements. Carrie, uh, another community is also grappling with this uh, migrant crisis, and that is West Suburban Oak Park. What's yeah, happening? well, I wouldn't say grappling, and certainly not in the same way the city is, but in the sense of um, they have been, village trustees have been figuring out how, how they can help. I think there are some migrants, um, I don't know the exact number, that are that are staying at a church there. There are nonprofits um, that, that want to step up and help. This is not, um, this is part of a tradition of Oak Park. You know, Oak Park has always been um, a little bit more progressive. And they have also had um, pretty progressive housing policies in the past. So uh, this is them saying, this is, you know, we need to do this. We are a welcoming place as well. Mm -hmm. I'm not. There's 160 migrants at the two churches. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that's a, that's a decent amount. I think that's about how many are at O'Hare, probably. I'm not, I don't know. Um, some some village trustees are against this, and I think that they are trying to work with, you know, suburbs past Oak Park, maybe Forest Park, you know, western suburbs to see how else they might step in and help. Um, so we'll see. And the city is looking to be able to move people to other cities within Illinois as well as uh, across the Midwest. Uh, they're getting some state money. There's some state money being made available for those purposes. Yeah. Uh, but it's also something they have to be careful about because they don't want to be seen as pushing people out mm-hmm. either. And so they'll be waiting for volunteers to move to some of these other places. The fact that they're struggling with this shows that there aren't a lot of easy answers. Uh, know that 34th Ward Alderman Bill Conway is seeking help from the city trying to deal with homeless tent camps in his downtown neighborhoods. Uh, But he's accusing the Johnson administration of refusing to help him, David. Well, yes. Uh, There was this interesting situation that Bill Conway says he was approached by the key mayoral advisor, Jason Lee, and basically said, we'll help you out with this problem of uh, encampments in the viaducts around the major train stations downtown, but only if we get your votes on uh, uh, real estate transfer tax and uh, the end to the um, uh, tipped wage uh, policies mm-hmm. in the city. And um, he, Bill Conway, the alder person, says, well, wait a minute, this is about public safety in my ward. This is not something that you want to do a political trade for. And the, the, the city, the, the administration, Mayor Johnson's administration is coming back by saying, well, we're, what we're actually doing is providing you political cover here and that, that it's going to look unprogressive for you to be pushing these, uh, these homeless people out of these viaducts. And so if these two votes will help you do well with progressives. Oh, so it, it's, a, it's a pretty ugly sort of old style Chicago politics type um, but power Conway play. Wants- right, but this is not the first time that drinking has happened in this saloon. I mean, I, I, when, I, when, I, when I covered City Hall, uh, Rich Daly was accused of trying to horse trade. Uh, and I think we use that term, horse trading, um, around budget time. 
Um, and his response, if I recall correctly, was there's no horse trading going on. And then he started saying, hee-haw, hee-haw, hee-haw <laughs> at this news conference. And believe me, it, you think it was funny. You're laughing, but it was a lot funnier in Rich Daly's high-pitched voice. Yeah. Like, <laughs> a deeper voice than Rich. All right. One last city council story before we break, Dan. Uh, members of the public attending several recent city council meetings, they've been called disruptive. Uh, apparently, city council's sergeant-at-arms has had enough you don't want to mess with the Sarge. <laughs> they run the press room, too. Sarge I was, I always was close friends with the Sarge when I was on the beat there at the City Hall press room. But people are getting a little unruly at City Council meetings, maybe to an extent we haven't seen uh, perhaps since the 1980s with some, some exceptions over the years that I can recall. But um, they're trying to clamp down on some of the behavior that we've seen lately. You know, this sort of incivility or... Um, uh, resorting to, um, you know, more active protest than just words um, is becoming something that's more than normal. Like we saw at the DNC the other day, certainly like we saw on January the 6th, 2021. I don't want to both sides anything, but it is happening with people on the far right and in Chicago, probably more so on the far left. And um, so they're going to enforce some rules. Uh, I think it includes no more vulgar discriminatory threatening language, no signs or flyers, mm. no food and beverages like um, metal water bottles, for instance. So wow. you can only have clear bags smaller than 12 by 6 inches if you were planning to go there. Um, and, um, you know, so we're, we're seeing a lot of uh, bad behavior and the Sarge uh, there wants to yeah. crack yeah, down on behalf of the city council. Possibly an overreach. Though. I mean, the public safety thing is, of course, very, very important. But no well, signs of the city council Well, some elders are saying that they've, they've, they've I mean, feared for their safety. Yeah, for, with good reason. With good They're reason. very close One, to the yeah. gallery here, and there is there is a legitimate safety concern. But that's not quite the same as saying you can't hold up a sign during a city council meeting. Or, you know, basically, I, I, I'm a little worried about the free expression part of this. Mm. It, it could become an issue. I mean, it's it's not just George Blakemore, you know, the say. famous yeah, exactly. gadfly, <laughs> yeah. uh, making his speeches and, and harmlessly... Uh, speaking, um, but they they have had pretty tight security. They're tighter than in the past, and I think with with some reason. What do you think, Carrie, about these new rules and and maybe how it changes the way members of the public will engage at council meetings? Yeah, I agree with David. I mean, engagement. I think is uh, I, we would we want more engagement, That's right? That's right. the idea. This is there are they work for us. They're our representatives. Um, but Dan's right, especially around the Israel Hamas war. There have been very um, very fiery protests um, mm -hmm. that I think have have maybe made some members unsafe, you know, feel unsafe. And also, I think make other protesters feel, you know, you want some civility in when you're expressing yourself as well. So they shouldn't feel feel unsafe either. But well, there are already metal detectors in terms of the more extreme situations being right. deterred. But as Hopefully. Dan said, there's also an environment now. We saw an older person assaulted out in the not uh, in, the in her ward, yeah. Julia Ramirez. Um, so it, there is a, a coarsening of discourse generally, and so there's a legitimate concern here. But but there are also, I think, a big risk of overreach. As we close out the conversation, one more little tidbit: Health and Human Relations Committee Chair Alder Rosanna Rodriguez Sanchez of the 33rd Ward read the new rules before chairing that committee meeting on Tuesday. And at one point, she threatened to use the new rules to eject someone who was already violating them. 
So right, it it just gives basically a member un- of the public unchecked, right. It gives the virtually unchecked power to the people who don't necessarily like what they're hearing from the gallery and. They ought to hear what the gallery has to say about a lot of these issues. Yeah. Well, it's a body where the mayor once turned the microphone off, though, on, on an alderman, on <laughs> another elected official <laughs> who had an opinion, and that was the first Mayor Daly. <laughs> We took a closer look at Chicago's budget. Now let's turn our attention to some other things happening in the area. First up, a new rule that aims to stop Chicago cops from joining extremist groups. Here's Dan. This has been in the works for about 10 months. You know, a couple of years ago, it became clear that there were quite a few uh, Chicago police officers who had joined groups that were involved in the January 6, 2021 riot at the U.S. Capitol, um, you know, that, that some have called an insurrection or an attempted coup. We don't know if any of those cops were there that day, but a lot of them got involved with Oath Keepers, Three Percenters, uh, Proud Boys, mm-hmm. and these other sorts of, uh, you know, hate or extremist anti-government groups. There's some nuances between all of those groups, but they're generally classified together uh, also with militias and have been involved in some acts of violence. And so, you know, is that compatible with being a Chicago police officer um, and so this rule uh, has been approved by a civilian-led uh, police accountability panel, mm-hmm. and um, it would uh, explicitly state, you would think that it didn't have to be said, but it would explicitly state that they can't uh, be in the Chicago police and then join these sorts of groups in their spare time, you know, uh, as their extracurricular uh, pursuits. And so, so how will CPD determine then whether an officer is actually affiliated with these groups? Well, one way that we determined that some of them were affiliated with these groups, at least at one time or another in the past, was uh, there were leaked membership lists of these groups, and we looked at the records. So the information is out officers. there. In many cases, it is already out there. Although uh, I think all those officers would probably say that they're not in those groups anymore. Um, some of them have told us that specifically. So, our, you know, what do you do about guys that were in these groups? And by the way, they are all guys. They're all, all men, the ones that mm-hmm. we've discovered to this point. Um, and, uh, you know, we had a series of stories together with the Sun-Times uh, called Extremism in the Ranks um, here on WBZ also last month, looking at the records of some of these cops and what kind of officers they have been, what, how they have been accused of various things uh, in the line of duty. But how would it be investigated to your question? I mean, it's a new rule and it would be investigated the same way as everything else, which to be frank has not been very thoroughly. You know, there's a long history of whitewashing uh, misconduct, except in cases where there's explicit, blatant uh, proof of of this wrongdoing. Um, You know, at one point, I think close to 98% of the the complaints that the public made about police officers were being tossed out. And is that because 98% of the time those are completely baseless accusations? Yeah. I would think not. Well, Ramel Terry, who sits on Chicago's Community Commission for Public Safety and Accountability, she joined us on Reset earlier this week to talk about this. And I want to play a little bit of how she explained which groups cops should be banned from joining. When we talk about biased organizations, it's really to 
um, hold those accountable who are engaged in behavior of a discriminatory nature, right? Mm -hmm. Because we've heard um, from community, from officers, like everybody has a bias. And that is true. However, when that bias is something that is done via an act of violence or unlawful force to um, be in a discriminatory nature, that is when that is a problem. So now, Dan, Cook County's uh, state's attorney, Kim Fox, she stepped in? Yeah, uh, just um, today we're reporting uh, together with the Sun-Times again uh, that um, all those officers we identified in the story last month, you know, one of the things the CPD had said before was, well, we don't know who they all are. Tell us who they all are. Give us the data. Well, we're not doing that, number one. But number two, we named them all in the story last month. And uh, in that story, um, there were t 10 officers uh, that, that she took from that list, Kim Fox, and said mm -hmm. these nine active duty officers and this one guy who just recently retired, we're putting them on a list of officers who we will not call to testify in criminal cases. So if they work on these cases, they will not be part of presenting the state's case. The, they will not be part of the prosecution, which would then you know, beg the question of what are they going to do? for the Chicago Police Department for what we pay them if they can't um, be relied upon as witnesses. Kim Fox says, well, these guys under Supreme Court rulings, if we bring them into a case, we'll have to notify the defense that they have issues with their credibility. Yeah. And so if these w witnesses are impeachable, these officers who presumably would witness crimes that are being uh, prosecuted, well, they would be useless to the prosecution. Mm -hmm. All right. Sticking with professional conduct, David, the Chicago Board of Ethics dismissed a complaint against former Mayor Lori Lightfoot. What are the details? Well, it's a really interesting case in which uh, Mayor Lightfoot uh, used her office uh, in order to advance her personal political agenda. Uh, she sent emails to teachers at the Chicago Public Schools, to city colleges, faculty, seeking uh, support for her campaign in different ways. Her campaign sent these emails out, but okay. nevertheless, there was there was a, a leeching over into uh, political activity by the offices of, of the mayor using city symbols, et cetera. The inspector general investigated and looked into this and recommended uh, $60,000 in fines uh, on three violations that were cited. At one point, the ethics board endorsed the IG's finding, but now the board finally has ruled, and after much pushback from the mayor's attorneys, mm -hmm. former mayor's attorneys, by the way, uh, they, they've they've now ruled that, that there is no finding of liability here and that the mayor basically has been cleared of these charges. Nevertheless, the record does show, uh, at the very least, bad judgment yeah. on the part mm -hmm. of the mayor's campaign, and um, uh, Deborah Witzberg, the who replaced Joe Ferguson as the Inspector General, of who famously had very difficult relationship with the, with Mayor Lightfoot. Deborah Witzberg is really showing herself to be kind of a cop on the beat uh, mm. in the like, much like Ferguson, and cracking down on issues like this. What did the Board of Ethics uh, decide about the city treasurer? Uh, that Melissa Conyers Irvin um, uh, did, in fact, uh, in their view, uh, abuse. Um, City uh, resource taxpayer money. Ta taxpayer money by uh, having uh, people working for her uh, uh, do kind of uh, work on a birthday party, personal uh, errands, <laughs> personal errands, uh, a security guard that she was not entitled to, and also that her um, uh, she 
helped a constituent by arranging a mortgage um, for a building that her husband, the alderman, Jason Irvin, happens to have uh, an, an aldermanic office mm-hmm. in. She says she does that all the time for constituents, although she hasn't provided much record of doing that for people other than the landlord of her husband's aldermanic office. Yeah. Is she still running for Congress? I feel like it's so been, far, I'm in, I'm right. out, I'm in. Okay, okay, so far, yeah. And let, let's point out in the case of uh, Melissa Conyers-Irvin that the former mayor, Lightfoot, in her administration had tried to keep a lot of this under wraps and, and the Chicago Tribune, particularly Greg Pratt, uh, were pursuing that story for a long, long time before all of this came to light and, and continues to unfold. Yeah, it was a six-month fight just to get these records that the public has absolute right to. Yeah, this is one of three citywide elected officials, you, you know, the treasurer. A lot of times she's not in the headlines uh, because it's not, you know, very uh, you know exciting um, sort yeah. of news that mm-hmm. comes from there. But but they do have to, to behave ethically, and it's a very important office. You know, only the mayor, the clerk, and the treasurer are elected in citywide. Well, level. this treasurer has found a way to get her name into that. <laughs> she sure has. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So, Carrie, tell me what's going on with gas prices right now. Our gas bills are going up? Well, actually, natural gas is currently down, but that's another story. Um, yeah, so People's Gas was seeking a $402 million rate hike. Um, part of this for their safety, for their replacement the old pipes in the city they're you know something like more than 2,000 miles of it um, which they say are more susceptible to leaks mm-hmm. um, and the where where consumer advocates are really pushing back was this was going to be like a like eleven dollars and 83 cents yes exactly eleven dollars and 83 cent hike on your bill now people's gas pushes back and says let's remember we haven't done a rate hike in nearly a decade um they also said because this is why i bring up the price of natural gas because the um price of natural gas is low right now mm-hmm. um your bill will your final bill with that hike would essentially be the same well you know the the cost of natural gas is a variable it fluctuates based right. on many factors um all this to say that the illinois commerce commission did not agree that there should be an 11 dollars 83 hike um and they pushed back and said that it has. They are actually going to temporarily suspend that pipe replacement uh, program because there's been some accusations from Citizens Utility Board and Illinois Perg that uh, it's been mismanaged. So People's Gas told me today they're going to look at that ruling and see if they need to make adjustments. Um, but basically, your rate hike would, with the ICC's vote, would come down to about ten bucks. Okay. monthly but it's important to note and this is sometimes it's done important reporting great reporting on this is that you know these rate hikes and these these disproportionately affect black and brown neighborhoods who receive the most disconnection notices mm-hmm. um for lack of pay yeah there so, were record numbers that came out just in uh in october correct yeah. yeah correct so that was a big that was a big thing for the consumer advocacy groups of saying you know we need this is this is gonna this is gonna hurt these communities. Right. Right. Well, let's hit uh, two trials real quick here before we take a pause. David, you first here on Ed Burke, the corruption trial of Chicago's longest-serving alderman. What's the delay here? What's going on? Well, um, what's going on is is perhaps uh, you know the the second uh, huge trial of public corruption and the biggest aldermanic trial in recent memory. And uh, the defense lawyer, Chris Gare, um, said that the it is the greatest honor of his career to represent this good man 
alder person Ed Burke, former alder person Ed Burke, whom the the prosecution says was a bribe taper and an extortionist. And of course, we've been treated over the last several years, really four years since this case first emerged, uh, to all kinds of treats, uh, some of which have gone into the lexicon of Chicago's storied history of political corruption, in which Dan oh is such an expert. Um, and uh, the, that yeah, there's one, some, the, the there's one, some gems. <laughs> the, yeah. the one, the one that really stands out is when he he said uh, to one of his aides. Uh, on something taped by the FBI, um, did you land the tuna when seeking? Um, uh, well, my favorite is have, I haven't heard the cash register ring yet. <laughs> exactly, but, and but we'll the, see. They'll have a different context right. for it, perhaps. So, so, so the prosecution lawyers. and the defense—they actually began opening statements. I, right. I know that we were delayed because the defense attorney had COVID. Yes. So things are up and running now. As far as I know, things are proceeding in, in court today. They were supposed to finish the opening argument by the uh, defense. The defense, they nearly ended it, the day with just the prosecution stating its opening statement. And um, the defense said, hey, can't we get a little bit of a dip here? We still got more news to cover, like an earthquake that shook parts of the state. It was in the town of LaSalle in north-central Illinois. But suburban residents in Aurora, Elgin, as far north as Buffalo Grove, reported that they felt the shaking. So I asked our panelists if the earthquake woke any of them up on Wednesday morning. I did work up did around that time, but I may have had to go to the bathroom. There's <laughs> too much No, I don't remember if it was a. I don't. I, I, don't I've, I slept through an earthquake in Mexico City once that was like well, this much was a, this larger was a magnitude. This was 3.6 magnitude. There are so many other things waking me up where I live. That's <laughs> not the earthquake. It's not the earthquake. Alrighty then. Yeah. All right. I, I skipped that story, I must admit. Did any of you remember experiencing or hearing of another earthquake in Illinois, like in the past? I felt the one in 2010? 2010. I felt it because I was just parking on the seventh floor of a downtown garage. I think it, it was all the way out and pretty far from here. It where pretty it had, far. Like on the East Coast. But I, I, I was like, why is this parking deck just like rocking very gently? Yeah. 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 Only earthquake I've ever felt in Chicago. I would have been here in this exact building. A 2008 <laughs> one too, a 1958 one. Wow. I wasn't I wasn't here for that. Were there predictions uh, of a major one that was supposed to come and it never arrived? Too? That was in New, New Madrid. Exactly. Oh. New Madrid. Missouri, which did have a huge earthquake many, many decades ago. Right. Mm. We got a meteorologist over here. <laughs> right, Dan. The new, seismologist. New what other talents do you have? <laughs> Amateur seismologist. <laughs> All right, well, let's, let's bring it back to the city of Chicago. There's a new leader over at the Chicago Department of Public Health. Carrie, just tell us a bit more about Dr. Olusimbo Ige. Dr. Ige, um, she she came from, well, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation as a nonprofit um, focused on health equity, but she was also in New York City's Department of Public Health. And just like our previous CDPH head, Allison Arwoody, she was in the thick of the pandemic, um, you know, there in New York, um, also working on violence prevention, a lot of mental health uh, work there as well. 
if we recall, remember, uh, her predecessor was a little bit unceremoniously fired, something that Mayor Brandon Johnson actually promised that would happen. Back in August, remind us what contributed to her firing, or what might have. What might have. Well, yeah, you could look at it a couple ways. A couple would be that um, Johnson, and he was then with the Chicago Teachers Union and has been really supported by CTU, um, we're not happy that Mayor Lightfoot and essentially Dr. R. Woody uh, returned schools. They opened schools what they what many teachers thought was too early in the pandemic when cases were still really high. Um, he also disagreed with her quite publicly about mental health clinics in the city. Um, former Mayor Rahm Emanuel closed, you know, more than 15 public health uh, mental health clinics in the city. And an approach that Lightfoot and R. Woody took is that these should be sort of um, public-private partnerships. And we say private. These are like nonprofit organizations should be running these. They said that could give communities more specialized care. They said that that was serving more people than the Mm. city at the city mental health clinics. So I don't think it's a coincidence that he has tapped somebody who worked in mental health um, in New York. Mm -hmm. And so maybe that's something that is going to get him closer to his campaign promise. What's interesting is that in his budget, he's put put only two mental health centers opened reopening on a pilot basis Mm -hmm. and he said this his first budget is a down payment on his progressive agenda but it's a pretty small down payment in this particular (laughs) instance right right so dr ige begins december 4th she's also going to be the first black woman to lead the department wow that's impressive yeah she was tapped by there was a you know very impressive panel like our former illinois department of public health director Ezekiel uh, David Ansel's longtime community health person. They they right. picked. They were part of a panel that chose her. So speaking of Dr. Arwady, uh, we also learned where she is going to be headed. Carrie, what's the latest? She's going to the CDC um, to work on, I believe, suicide prevention. Um, also, I think the the fentanyl and drug overdose opioid um, opioid crisis, yeah. CDC in Atlanta, of course. And I think if I recall, she did some work on opioid um, prevention here at some point. You know, she's an infectious disease expert. She's right. a pediatrician. She said, you know, when she was CDPH head, she said she still saw patients. Um, so I'm not sure if maybe, you know, I, I do... I do think from interviews with her um, that she wanted to stay in some sort of public health role. That was very important to her. Um, So she's going to, you know, CDC, which makes sense. I'm sure this role set her up quite nicely for for that. Yeah, it's the uh, CDC's National Center for Injury Prevention and Control. Right. The official name. But yes, focusing on, as you said, overdoses and and suicides. Yeah. And last we talked to her, you know, this is a thing. And the new director is going to be inheriting this as well. There is a um, a lack of public health workers. There are a lot of vacancies at CDPH right now. Um, And I don't think any of us would be surprised why, because of what they were on the front lines of dealing with. Um, And that was really important to Arwitty when we talked to her, um, when I, you know, that this is something she you know, she wanted to get more people back into the field. Yeah. Any thoughts, David, on Mayor Johnson firing her in August? Well, it, Carrie, I think, explained it very, very well. And I would say that set aside whatever your political view on that matter, there's mm-hmm. no doubt that she was very effective as an administrator of one of the most serious public health emergencies facing uh, this city and, and the nation. I think she stood out for her professionalism yeah. there. And, and the way she was handled was, was inexcusable. Uh, there were better ways to dismiss her if you thought that was necessary. 
Let's turn to something very different, Dan. Chicago police arrested more than 100 protesters at Ogilvy train station on Monday. What was that about? It's about Gaza, you know, and it's uh, protesters who are blocking the entrance. I didn't know, but in the same building as the, that major train hub is the Israeli consulate. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the consul general of, of the state of Israel, as is their offices there. And, um, you, you know, they're calling for a ceasefire. It's a group uh, that said was identified as Midwest Jews. So, you know, we've had a, a lot of people, and, I, and, I, and I, my heart goes out to anybody in the Chicago area or beyond that's in the diaspora of, of Palestinians and in the Jewish community as well. There are many, many people in both of those communities, and, and those communities are not monolithic either, of course, mm-hmm. when it comes to these nuanced and difficult issues uh, like um, the the terrorist attack first, uh, of yeah. course, uh, on Israel by Hamas, and then the this reaction, this invasion of Gaza uh, by Israel and the bombing, um, and then people that are displaced, the innocent people killed. Um, and so this issue is obviously going to manifest itself in Chicago when you consider um, that there are, are people who are Jewish and, and, and Israel is, is a, you know, the Jewish state, uh, Jewish homeland, and uh, but they're people with different opinions, and we're, and we're seeing that every right. day. And, of course, Cook County was just reported by, by our colleagues here at WBZ. Uh, their analysis of the data shows more Palestinians in mm. Cook County than any county in the United States. I mean, certainly the Chicago area and the Detroit area, I think, have the largest Arab communities, and, and there's a bit of religious diversity and, and yeah. uh, within those communities as yeah. well. And, and while that Quite was going bit. on downtown, anti-Semitic signs were showing up in the Northwest Jefferson Park neighborhood. This was a, a Block Club Chicago story, right, Dan? Yeah, it, there's a guy out there who uh, is leaving uh, anti-Semitic, we, we believe it, one guy leaving anti-Semitic hand-drawn cardboard signs on cars. Uh, I don't want to really talk about what's in those but they're, let's say, hateful signs, right. 45 of them over the weekend of uh, November the 4th, and another uh, 15 similar signs reported by a neighbor on Wednesday morning on the northwest side of Chicago where, um, you know, again, um, you're seeing anti-Semitism. All the groups, the ADL and other groups, will tell you that the, the incidents of, of hate crimes and hate speech are, are rising. Yeah, absolutely. And have been for, for a number of years, Very actually. sad to see. Uh, switching gears here, David, Northwestern is in the news. Uh, they named their new football coach, promoting interim coach David Braun to permanent head coach. Now, that announcement came as they await final decision on their stadium plans. And we know that Evanston City Council was supposed to vote on that Monday, but there was a last-minute offer from Northwestern that delayed the vote. Yes, Northwestern has continued to try to calibrate, like, what will it take to get this $800 million stadium passed so they can turn it into a concert venue. And much of that is being paid for by uh, Pat and Shirley Ryan, whose names are already plastered all over uh, the university campus, including the stadium that they want to tear down and rebuild a megastructure, which actually will have smaller seating capacity, but will be a larger entertainment complex. Neighbors have been resisting this. Um, They're down to now six concerts a year and uh, increasingly valuable promises of contributions to the community, altogether about $160 million being promised by Northwestern now. There's been a big pushback on city council. There's a racial divisions over this issue mm-hmm. uh, that the neighbors up in the northwest part of Evanston, a predominantly white community, who don't want their quiet 
evenings interrupted. And um, then the people in minority communities are saying, hey, we want this investment. Right. They're promising that that there's going to be a very diverse uh, range of investment and that uh, minority contractors will get a large part of the business. And so mm. uh, it'll all come to a head Monday, Monday at City Council. It looks like it's going to pass, in my view. You think so? That's what yes. I'm yeah, thinking. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, the Chicago Fire Department's mourning the loss of one of their own. Andrew Price died uh, fighting a fire in Lincoln Park this week. He's the fourth firefighter to die on duty this year. Uh, I feel like that's just a reminder for us all to just be grateful for uh, the very dangerous work that they do. Yeah, and David made a point when we were off air talking about, you know, sadly, we usually see these in the winter is when you hear more of these accidents and fires because of heat. And it's just been so unseasonably warm. I don't even think we have our heat on at home. I don't know about you guys. No, not um, yet. Yeah, thank goodness. Uh, yeah, so it's... It, Which is wild. It's November 17th. Right, right. It's the most uh, deaths that they've had, believed to be the most since uh, 25 years at least. Mm, um, wow. I know with, with a more deadly year, so a tragic uh, year. And really, like you said, no no really rhyme or reason. It's a dangerous job, and, and uh, it's been, been very, very bad. For those of us who started out the City News Bureau of Chicago, one of the things you did was covered fires at night during the winters. And when you see what these heroes do every day as part of their jobs— it's just amazing, and, and it, it's tragic when uh, when they lose life, uh, hmm. keeping the rest of us safe. Yeah, so admirable. Rest in peace, Andrew Price. All right, that is it for the weekly news recap. My thanks to Carrie Shepard of Axios, David Grising of the Better Government Association, and WBEZ's Dan Mahalopoulos for being with us. Happy early Thanksgiving. Yeah, Thanksgiving. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> That's it for WBEZ's Weekly News Recap. It was produced by Andrea Guffman and edited by Maha Ahmed and Brenda Ruiz. Tomorrow on the podcast, we wrap up Grammy Nominations Week on Reset with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Did you know Beyonce has 32 Grammys? Yeah, well, I bet you definitely didn't know the CSO has 64. Yeah, we'll talk with a few members from the Chicago cultural staple about this year's nominations. We'll also listen to some beautiful music. Spend your Saturday morning with us when we drop that conversation on your podcast feed. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We'll see you then. Have you ever wondered why anyone drinks Malort? Or if there are actually lobsters in the Chicago River? Then listen to the Curious City podcast, where we answer all your questions about Chicago and the region. WBEZ's Curious City is part of the NPR network and available wherever you find your podcasts.